Hey you guys, Sergeant PC here. Let's take a quick trip down memory lane. Remember that one time Captain Chaos and I met Super Crime Buster? That was a fun day. Or the time he helped the Johnson family against that computer hacker. Yoga? Nah, not for me. Next. Or that time in court with Judge Mint. ADA Justin Case went up against Scott Free, Robbie Blind, Treacherous Tony, and of course Chance Wilder. Treacherous Tony conducting illegal activity at a basketball court. In the summer months when we had to educate kids about dirt bikes and four-wheelers on the roadway. Robbie Blind attempting a burglary. Yep, he got caught. Frequent flyers Robbie Blind and Chance Wilder, they get caught often. Remember the time Captain Chaos and I visited Miss Gaynor's classroom? Yeah, I think he's got a crush on her. Then there was cuffing season with the smoke detector, no gas, and the free coffee. Or <laughs> this poor guy who had to go up against Nasty Nina and her attorney Wacky Tacky. Or how about the time Rob Your Blind and Treacherous Tony got into that traffic accident while drinking and driving? They really thought they were gonna run away. These and many more adventures can be seen on our YouTube page and also during the podcast Black and Blue. Don't forget to watch us and subscribe, and that's your tip of the day to get you on your way. Welcome to Black and Blue, the podcast that's just for you. We bring solutions to everyday problems. We are here to humanize the badge. By interviewing first responders and discussing their trainings, experiences, and publications. Black and Blue airs weekly at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Tune in. Welcome to Black and Blue, the podcast that brings you the untold stories behind the badge. Every week at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we dive deep into the lives of our unsung heroes. The first responders and law enforcement officers who put their lives on the line to protect us all. So join us as we humanize the badge. We shed light on the incredible individuals who wear it proudly. From rookies just starting out on their journey, to seasoned vets with years of experience. Even retirees who continue to make a difference in their communities. Come with us and discover the trainings that mold us. unforgettable experiences that make us and the publications that inspire us to push forward.
So buckle up and get ready to embark on a thrilling journey through the lives of those who protect and serve. This is The Heartbeat, Black and Blue. Happy New Year, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. This is our first show of the year. I know you guys are excited as I am. I'm happy to be back here. This is Black and Blue. This is the podcast that is just for you. We go live weekly at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And when we go live, we have a, a wonderful guest and we, we interview them, whether they're rookie season or retiree, and we discuss their trainings, their experiences, and their publications. And I'm looking for all – we got an all-star lineup this entire month and this year. We're taking this year by charge. Hope you guys like the new intro. Hope you guys like the new cartoon with Sergeant B. Safe. Again, I'm excited to be here. I, I hope you guys are too. I'm your, I'm your host. I'm Coach Clee. Some You know me as Coach Clee. Clee Tillman as Clark Tent. Many different names on many different platforms. You want to know why? Because we're streaming on five different platforms. We're on one on LinkedIn, we're on two on Facebook, and we're on two on YouTube. And it'll also be uploaded to uh, Apple and, and Spotify, probably more likely by tomorrow. So make sure you guys check those, those pages out. Make sure you tag, like, and share. Hit the like button because likes are free. And we want to keep this show going because the information here is wonderful. We like to humanize the badge. I am your motivational speaker, your empowerment coach, your author, and your favorite baker's favorite baker. And this is a live show. So make sure that you guys have, if you want to the shout out that you're looking for, you got to put your name and where you're from in the comments section because all the different platforms we are we're on i can't see who's on here so make sure you put your name and where you're from and i'll give you that shout out that you're looking for if you have a question put that in the comments section as well and we'll acknowledge your question to the best of our ability understand there's about a five to ten second delay so we'll get to those questions as soon as we can if you're watching the replay put your questions in there and we'll get back to them as well all right i'm glad that you guys are here i hope you guys had a, a wonderful holiday season a safe new year. We're here with Black and Blue. We're going to be moving this thing forward. Let me get this banner correct. You know, this platform is sponsored by One Way Publishing. One Way Publishing is the book publishing company where I got to write my five books. And not only that, they they produce so many other books with their different clients on there. Workwithclue.com is the website you want to utilize to be a guest on the show. So if you want to do uh, help do voiceovers for Sergeant Be Safe, and or if you're interested in writing your own book. And speaking of writing your own books, let me get these up here. Kay Childs just wrote, after 30 years of wondering, she just wrote her first book, uh, her poetry book, and she's very proud of it. It's available on Amazon. Make sure you guys check that out. That just came out right at the beginning of December. It's a, a lifelong journey. It's lifelong poetry that she's been doing, and she wasn't going to uh, have it published, and she didn't know how she was going to get it published, and One Way Publishing made that happen. 
Also, children's book, the first children's book through One Way Publishing. You know, One Way Publishing, their motto is they can take a mere thought and turn it to a book that's bought. So to be so tall was as a mother-daughter dynamic duo. They wrote their own children's book, and it's going on tour right now as we speak. So make sure you guys check that out. That's on Amazon as well. And uh, the reach out for that, uh, workwithclee.com. Like I said, it's in the comment section, and you see it scrolling below. All right? Without for, oh, yeah, I got a couple announcements. I'm sorry. Make sure you guys hit those likes, get those, the platform going. Um, also, tomorrow is Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. So those of you first responders, law enforcement, you know, we salute you. Thank you for your service. Where It's a tough job, past, present, and future. But tomorrow is Law Enforcement Appreciation Day, and I thank you. Because, you know, I'm Coach Clee, and Clee is C-L-E-E, standing for Continuing Law Enforcement Edutainment. And that's exactly what we're going to do today, because we got a special guest in the background. Some of you may know who he is. Others of you may not. But we're going to have fun interviewing him. Uh, I got his bio. I couldn't get it all in. But it's, it's tremendous, and we're, if you get your questions ready, make sure that you're ready to go because he's got 33 years of law enforcement service where he's had 21 years at Anchorage. Yes, Anchorage, Alaska Police Department, 12 years with Idaho Post. Post uh, is an acronym standing for P Peace Officers Standard and Training. He's a regional coordinator for post and, re and also a coordinator for firearms. He's an adjunct instructor and a use of force instructor and expert. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, let me get the banner up here correctly before I bring him to the stage. I want to bring to you Matt Bloodgood. Let me pull him up here on stage. Matt, are you here? Hey, how's it going? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. Thank you for making yourself available. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for inviting me on the program. I'm honored to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm excited to have you. I'm, I'm starstruck. I know you've got a wealth of experience and a wealth. Uh, I mean, just I know when we were talking on the phone a few weeks ago, just hearing about Alaskan life, period, because that's something that's strange to me because I've never been I've, I've been to Canada. That's about as far north as I've been. And that's probably been. Um, oh, man, I for, uh, right across Niagara Falls. So that that whatever. That area in Canada, that's about as far north as I've been. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your training and experiences. Tell us how you got the bug to get into law enforcement. Well, the bug, if you will, I, I think all of us, as we've talked before, all of us have our story on how we got on the job. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, uh, my dad was a reserve police officer in a small town here in Idaho. Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side uh, was one of the early pioneers in uh, radio. And back in the 30s, um, he helped install the radio system for the LAPD and the LASO. And back then, there wasn't anything like a reserve program, as, as I understand it. I mean, this is big to me from my dad. And so in order to go out and ride along to make sure that the radio system actually worked, you know, you're in a cop car and you carry a badge and a gun. And so, uh, and so that's what he did. And so I kind of grew up uh, exposed to that, and then um, when we were, when I was about eleven years old, uh, my dad moved us up to Alaska because uh, it was at the height of the pipeline oil days back in the mid seventies, and um, job opportunities were up there, and, and so I just kind of grew up in Alaska. And in ninety two, my dad retired, moved back to Idaho, and okay. I stayed up because by that time I was on the job. Um, I had. Um, wasn't sure what I wanted to do uh, with myself. Um, kind of was just stuck in a, in a job selling car paint. And uh, 
one day I'm driving through a construction uh, zone and decided to make a, a stupid decision, if you will, and make a left-hand turn again across three lanes of traffic and didn't clear that last lane of traffic and got T-boned. And uh, so while I'm sitting there in the uh, officer's car um, getting my citation for fail to yield, uh, he and I are having a conversation. And, uh, and I remember last week you had, it was Tim, right? Tom, Tom Sai. Tom, talking about how uh, police officers, you know, your officers or deputies can be your best recruiters. And this is just an example of that. Uh, just sitting in a car, chatting with him, uh, just kind of discussing law enforcement in general. And he suggested, because at that time, Anchorage had a hiring freeze going on, he suggested I look at joining the reserve program. And so I did. And then in February of 1987, got uh, brought on board onto the reserve program that put us into the academy. And about three or four weeks later, in the middle of the winter, they've got us out in downtown Anchorage trying to buy uh, dope off of street-level drug dealers. And, you know, from that point on, basically was hooked. And, uh, and, um, and I, I can get off of it. I mean, I'm sitting there going, good grief. You know, they actually pay people to do this job. And... Uh, uh, so it took about until December 1990 when I got hired full-time. Um, and uh, so then went into the academy, uh, graduated in April of uh, 91, and, and just started up down that path like all of us. So when we come out of the academy, I mean, we all take divergent paths uh, as we go along based on things that happen in your career. And so that's essentially how I got on the job. Well, ultimately, uh, spent uh, just short, a couple months short, 21 years in the PDs full-time. Uh, spent about eight and a half years of that on the street, um, working various um, in various capacities, such as uh, bike patrol, uh, worked with the community policing team for a while. Um, I was what was called a uniformed investigator. And, okay. and so those are officers that have special training to go out and process crime scenes. Uh, and so that's one of my job functions was going out and um, we would process at a street level uh, with certain exceptions on sexual assaults and homicides. Uh, we would process all of the um, types of crime scenes. <clears throat> and 93, I got uh, selected to the SWAT team, spent 17 and a half years there. Uh, we're up into a team leader position. And uh, in the last three years I was on the job, I was, um, you know, there was kind of an overlap. There was a three years where I was the basic academy supervisor, but there was two six months uh, stints where I got pulled out of the academy to go back and, and work as a member of the full-time SWAT team. Um, both of those coming on the heels of some officers that were shot. Wow. And um, then in, um, 2011, uh, this position here at Idaho Post came open. Uh, my folks were getting a little long in years, and I need to be a bit closer to them from up in Alaska. And applied for this position, got it, and here we are. So, and there we go. That, that's an interesting story on how you got to get to the seat that you're sitting in right now. And uh, to kind of divert just a little bit, because I know over the phone I asked the same question because I find it interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about, and I, it just may be me because I've never experienced it, a little bit about Alaskan life? Well, Alaska is, it, it's a really unique um, experience for obvious reasons. I mean, there's a lot of mystique about life in Alaska and, you know, everything is so big and, uh, you know, we tease people from Texas all the time because you could divide Alaska in half and both halves will still be larger than Texas. And so, there's that, and the diversity in terms of um, 
the wilderness areas um, and the wildlife and um, the work environment in Anchorage. A lot of people may not realize this, but Anchorage is a, a very diverse community. Uh, when I was working uh, downtown uh, patrol, I had uh, a large Korean community. We dealt with, uh, we had Alaska natives that were there and Alaska Indians. And it was just broad range, a broad spectrum of people that you get to talk to and and, and meet and, and have a lot of interesting conversations with about all sorts of stuff. Um, weather is obviously a, kind of a big deal and uh, you kind of get used to those extremes. Um, we, in the we would routinely get hurricane force winds. We don't get the, didn't get the rain like they do in, along the East coast in Florida you know, when hurricanes roll in, but we definitely could see those sustained winds. And, wow. and you could go from a situation um, like in January or February, depending on weather conditions, you could go from sub freezing temperatures to 50 degrees and rain and back to sub freezing temperatures all within the span of a week. Wow. And so it's a very unique environment. Um, uh, probably one, you know, a couple good examples I can give you of how unique it is. About 30 minutes from where we lived um, is a glacier, uh, and we would drive up there, drop our four-wheelers off, hop on those four-wheelers. It's about a 30-mile drive back, and you're going through the river and over rocks and through sand, and there's one point where you kind of round a corner, and if anybody from Alaska is listening to this, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about, and you kind of round this corner, and you have to stop, and you got to wait for people that are shooting to reload, so then you can take off and drive through the area, and, and you get out to the glacier. If you're out there early enough, you can actually get up onto the glacier itself and have lunch, uh, which is stuff that we would do, and then, and then drive back, and you get to see all the wildlife and whatnot that's there. And, you know, another example of the unique nature of it is um, um, we had a, a training scenario out on the military base there, and it was a mock hostage taking up at the ski chalet at the top of the mountain. And I remember we were having radio traffic back and forth um, about, hey, there's a moose over here. Hey, there's a bear over here. Hey, th th that pack of wolves is over here. You know, those kinds of conversations. and. Uh -huh. And so you have those types of experiences as well, which are really unique. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't trade, trade my career up there for anything. Uh, there's part of me that wants to move back there, but, you know, just there comes a point in time you know, with age and injuries that difficult just to be, just to be a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> Understood. Thank you for going through that. I appreciate that. Uh, jumping back in the interview, I know that through the regional coordinator uh, for posts in Idaho. Uh, how important is that for law enforcement? So every state has some board commission or council that sets standards and training. Now, I'll tell you, at least on the Idaho side of things, is a minimum level. Okay. Uh, and so we people that are listening need to be really clear. That's minimum level. So agencies are free to expand upon that. It is highly recommended that they do. <clears throat> so I know the Post Council uh, has legislative authority to, to set what those standards are. Uh, and then, and usually that's centered around the base academy. And so they'll set how long, the, what the academy length is. They'll set what the curriculum is going to be. Um, and then um, they have oversight on 
on what the training will actually consist of. Wow. So you have the training side uh, at the basic academy, and then you have the in-service side, uh, which is what a lot, of, which is what the regional coordinators do. So that's my role is on the in-service side. There's four of us uh, throughout the state, mm-hmm. and um, in my region, I have 13 counties. And and I have responsibility for everything from juvenile correction, juvenile detention, all the way up through dispatch, police, sheriffs, state police, fishing game, everything. So I've got about 1,100 certified um, officers or employees in my region. And uh, so my job is is to work with the agencies on training. So, like, say, for example, or even individually, so because uh, this happens quite a bit, too. Uh, let's say you were working an agency here in southeast Idaho and, and you identified a need that you would like some training, but you can't you're struggling with finding it. Then you get a hold of me and say, hey, Matt, do you know, of you know, class, say, underwater basket weaving for law enforcement. And so I'll go out and find you that class <clears throat> and uh, it's to you and your agency to uh, get you to it. Or agencies will say, hey, can you bring in uh, a class? And so we'll work together. And one of the things I do is I certify those courses. And so if an agency or if an agency wants to bring in a vendor, uh, say, uh, say something from the National Tactical Officers Association, want to bring them in. We have a process by which some of these vendors and organizations are, are vetted ahead of time. Um, if you said, hey, can you bring in, I want to bring in a SWAT class from the NTOA. NTOA has already gotten the thumbs up, and so there's not much more I need to do. If you're going to bring in something that is not regionally or nationally known, um, then then we do a course application. We have to approve it. And there's a lot of states that do that. Nevada, um, California, Texas, uh, for example, um, you have to get courses uh, pre-approved prior to that course being trained. And sometimes it's evaluated on content. Sometimes it's evaluated to make sure that all the required information is provided. Mm-hmm. So we approve it. Um, <clears throat> other things that we do, uh, a couple of us will also uh, do in-service training. So I'll, so I help out with uh, firearms. I help out use of force courses and things of that nature. Uh, most recently, I had one of my local smaller agencies in the northern part of my region ask for help with a uh, uh, de-escalation course. Okay. And so I had gone through for science, uh, realistic de-escalation instructor class, um, and uh, last year, and so I was able to put together a class for them and go up and, and present that to them. And, and sometimes we're able to do that for no cost. And then mm-hmm. several of us also teach at some of the university law enforcement programs as well. Right. And uh, I know uh, you created a few courses, like you said, and uh, um, in the past where you created courses um, or a, a curriculum for the courses, I should say. Uh, but you, do, you didn't know that you were going to present them. And that one of your fears was public speaking. How easy is it for you to do uh, public speaking as of now? Uh, you know, it's not so bad. There's a couple of times where I get a little bit nervous, uh, you know, especially if it's a large group. Uh, you know, I'll get a little bit nervous and then I'll sit back and I'll go, okay, so what's some of the training I've had to deal with some of the stress? And so I'll do combat breathing, right? And, you know, and, and I would tell you combat breathing is more than just – breathing because you're going into a rough situation you can use that in uh that breathing te- those breathing techniques anywhere where you're feeling some measure of stress yeah. um, i've done it multiple times um sitting in a witness stand uh, 
I'll go in and, you know, and you'll sit, you know, they'll call you up, they'll sit in the witness stand. And, and I know some officers see testifying in court as, as fun and as a challenge. I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that, you know, either somebody's life or a whole lot of money's at risk here. And so I take it very seriously. And so you're sitting there and you get, you know, that, that pre-interview jitters, you know, you get. Um, and so I'll, while everybody's all this crosstalk going back and forth, um, you know, just take a second and just do some quick combat breathing or, you know, box breathing. It's one of the different things. Um, there's some new research that's coming out on cyclic psi or, or the psychological psi, which is really promising. Um, it can be done a lot faster than, than typical box breathing. And so, you know, it's just kind of learning that stuff. And, uh, you know, and back in the, in the mid nineties, like I told you, I had zero interest in being an instructor because of, uh, yeah, you want to send me into Hey Matt, go in that building over there. There's a guy in there with a gun. He wants to kill you. Go get him. Okay. <laughs> All over that. But you know, put me in front of the class of people. No, I wasn't yeah. about to do that. Uh, it took every bit of effort I could to do, get through my speech class in college. And so in, in, you know, long story short, I got hurt in 97. I spent time sitting at home and I wrote a, wrote a lesson plan for our less lethal weapons program in Anchorage. And I presented it to the department. They said, great, go teach it. And, I, and so, uh, and so I started teaching it and then I ended up uh, in an event where I used a 37 millimeter to, uh, in a suicide intervention. And, and that just changed the course of my career. And, and here I am. So. Right. Yeah. So on a, we're talking about um, use of force and, and curriculums and, and being uh, um, um, be sitting on, on the stand, being a witness and things like that. Uh, what Use of force and becoming an expert. It's on uh, your use of force expert. Uh, how did you become uh, uh, or actually let's back up. What's a challenging scenario where you actually had to you experience being an expert in a situation where use of force was applied? Well, so I, I want to break this into two different stages. One was back in, in 2009. Uh, I was the training supervisor. I got called to come in and test into a deposition to talk wow. about the officer's training and records um, who had been involved in a shooting. And it went from, I just went in there thinking, oh, I'm just going to go in and go, yeah, I swear this is a true and accurate copy of his records. And I was out the door, right? Well, that's not what happened. Um, the attorney in that particular case started asking me a whole series of questions and, and what I thought was going to be, uh, you know, a five or 10 minute process turned into two days of deposition because in state court in Alaska at that time, there really wasn't a cap on how long you could be deposed. And then that turned into going into court and testifying. And, and as they were going through my training, my background, the plaintiff's attorney actually had me certified there as an expert in, in, in use force. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, testified in that case, we got a jury verdict in favor of the officer. And, um, and I walked away from that going, you know, I ain't gonna ever do this crap again. <laughs> you know, yeah. I just had zero <laughs> desire to, to do it. And uh, then in October, uh, 20, well, September of 2022, uh, I, I had a defense attorney reach out to me. Um, he he was working a case where an officer had been involved in a shooting here in Idaho where he inadvertently killed the homeowner. Mm. And so he had been criminally charged and the defense attorney um, said, hey, he was looking around for uh, an expert within the state of Idaho. He had a couple of experts from Science, um mm. that they were going to bring in. And 
but he wanted a, a local flavor, if you will. <clears throat> and so he was asking around and people kept pointing their fingers at me. And so he contacted me and he came down and talked to me and he said, hey, you know, here's the facts and circumstances of the case. And, and he says, and here's the video because the video had not been released to the public. And, and so I, I watched the video and I turned to him and I said, I'm in, what do you need? Um, because, you know, long story short, in this particular case, the officer was looking for a suspect. They believed he had a gun. He had warrants for his arrest. He was running through the neighborhood. And uh, he, he was described as a white male with a black shirt and tan pants. Uh, he broke into the, the home of the, the victim, if you will. Um, and the victim eventually chased him out of the house with a handgun. And, you know, the homeowner comes out of the house and he yells, hey, I got him over here. Well, the officer had to cross it, it's, you know, the yard to get to the gate to see what was going on. And when he gets there, he sees a white male in a black shirt with a handgun. And, you know, they, they order him to drop the gun. He turns towards them with the gun in, hand, in a low ready position and, and the officer shot him and, and killed him. And unfortunately, it was the homeowner. I mean, it was a very tragic, tragic set of circumstances. Um, and uh, and so that that kind of got me going and uh, and I helped out on the case. And um, ultimately, the, the the judge dismissed the case with prejudice mm-hmm. and um, the obvious civil suit that came along afterwards was settled. Uh, yeah. So I didn't have to be involved in that case. But that's mm-hmm. kind of what got me going. And then there were several times that um, there were some folks involved in the case that, that kept going, Matt, you need to kind of do this stuff um, on the expert side of it. Um, I took about, well, that, that case was concluded in April of 2022. Um, Mm-hmm. And then I spent probably the next six, seven months um, just talking to people. Um, I ended up crossing paths with uh, guys like Jamie Borden from Critical Incident Review, um, who Danny King works with, and, and, and several other people. Um, and so it just kind of started pointing me in that direction. Um, I would tell anybody, if you're thinking about going down that path, the first thing that you want to do is, is find somebody to mentor you. Mm, so critical because uh, there are so many things um, when you're talking about doing uh, this type of work, there are so many pitfalls and traps and tripwires. I mean, you name it, you can run into a problem. Yeah. And so you really need to find somebody who's been doing this uh, preferably for a while. Oh. Uh, I've only... You know, I've only handled uh, what eight eight cases in the last year and a half. At, you know, at the federal level, so I consider myself still learning that process myself. Um, and then once you get that mentor, talk to them. Um, then it's just a matter of continuing education. Um, I mean, I um, last year um, conservatively spent probably ten thousand dollars of my own money. Um, going to courses and travel and things of that nature because it's it's critically important to to get a good education and and have a basic understanding of what you're doing and you know and you, you want and even not even being an expert just being a cop being an instructor whatever the case may be you've got to have and foster a growth mindset oh, yeah. constant improvement and development of yourself. And, you know, and that's just one of those kinds of things where even if I wasn't doing the expert work, mm-hmm. um, my position here at Post, I continually am wanting to grow and develop my own skill sets um, so I can help 
be a more effective instructor, uh, mm-hmm. be more effective what I'm doing, because at the end of the day, this ain't about you. It isn't about me. It's about those folks out there that are just trying to live their lives. Yeah. In, in our role in law enforcement, what we're supposed to do. Yep. Good. Good answer. Good answer. Thank you for sharing all those experiences and, and that information. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, stand by. We're going to come right back. Right now, we got a pause for the cause for starting to be safe, but we're going to jump right back in this interview. We'll be right back. You need those pills to help you feel better. Treacherous Tony can help you. Um, uh... Megan, no! Don't listen to him! It's dangerous! Oh no... Hey there, sweetheart. Looking for something special? Um, uh, I've got this strange feeling something's not right. Captain Chaos, come on, we need to go investigate. Investigate? But I just bought a new (sighs) yo-yo. Oh my goodness, I just don't get it. Hold it right there, treacherous Tony. We know what you're up to. And we won't let you harm innocent people. You can't stop me, I've got connections. We're not afraid of your connections, Tony. We're here to protect the community. And make sure Megan gets the help she needs legally. Thank you, officers. You are absolutely welcome, Megan. Remember, folks, there's legal ways to get the help that you need. Don't let anyone take advantage of you. And if you ever need a helping hand, Sergeant B-Safe and Captain Chaos are here to save the day. And that's your tip of the day to get you on your way. And we are back. Right back. That was starting to be safe. Uh, cartoon. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We're jumping right back in this interview. We got Matt Bloodgood. Uh, we just talked about uh, some scenarios of, uh, with training, with post, um, with use of force. I want to ask you this, Matt. Uh, what are some misconceptions that the public may have in the eyes of law enforcement with uh, the, the use of use of force that you've experienced or that you may know of? Oh, there's a lot of them. There's a whole lot of them. <clears throat> um you know, some things are probably the one that's probably biggest in the forefront uh, right now is, you know, as soon as you say the word de-escalation, everybody seems to think that uh, that means that you can talk to whomever it is and talk them into surrendering, talk them into a pair of handcuffs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the reality is, is that there are just some people that are just so bent on whatever it is that they are doing. Um and no matter what you try and do, you know, force is going to have to be used. Uh, yeah. You know, there's um, there's three things that really are required in order for you to have successful de-escalation. The first is time. 
you've got to have time to be able to engage with the individual. And if they're acting in such a way or their behavior is such that you don't have the time, you have to respond, you have to stop the behavior. Um, well, okay, so there's there's your time right out the window. Yeah. The second thing is, and I'm borrowing kind of from Scott Savage from uh, Savage Training, he does a video on, you know, kind of describing de-escalation and what it really is. And he talks about it in the context of a noun, is it a noun or a verb? But he said there's two things, you know, that also have to go into this. One is, is the suspect has to agree to whatever techniques or tactics or whatever it is you're trying to do, and then they have to participate. And you need those three things. You need time, subject agreement, subject participation. And if you don't have those three things uh, or any one of them, think those things, then, you know, uh, a successful resolution um, without using force is extremely remote. Um, other things that, you know, folks sometimes have a misunderstanding about is, for example, they think that you'll always have to give a warning. Well, that's not what the court says. What the court says is when feasible, you should give a warning. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, I've had conversations with folks, well, they need to keep, keep giving them warnings. Well, again, time is a factor. Yeah. You know, what is it the guy's doing? And second of all, how many warnings? Yeah. You know, uh, you know, if you look at it, you know, when feasible, you need to give a warning. Well, A is an indication of a number. If you have time and can provide more warnings and try to engage in dialogue, engage in active listening, uh, try and talk to them, ask questions. Uh, it's one of the things that I constantly try to teach my recruits is, is, is myself, another officer that I worked with in downtown Anchorage. We talked about it being ask the next question. And oftentimes, uh, new officers look at you like, what the heck are you talking about? Well, it's, you know, don't get caught in this loop of drop the knife, drop the knife, drop the knife. Yeah. Because if, if you can kind of break out of that, that um, Ken Murray from Training at the Speed of Life talks, talks, calls it the goofy loop. If you can kind of get out of that um, and, you know, listen to a certain point, they may communicate to you. You know, you're saying drop the knife. And they're saying, no, shoot me now or kill me now or my life is over or, you know, something along those lines. You know, that might be something to cue you in to go, dude, why? Why are you trying to do this? You know, why do you want to kill yourself and see if you can engage them in a dialogue? Um, you know, and hopefully it works. It doesn't always work. Um, so, you know, those are some of the myths uh, you get into. Um, uh, sometimes people think that you have to go through all of your force options first before you get to deadly force. Mm -hmm. Time and threat are issues there. Um, what is the, what is it the subject is doing? Mm -hmm. um, and so everything has to be looked at within the context um, of that. Um, Sometimes there's confusion about whether cops need to be there or not. Should they, do they have a duty to retreat? And no, um, legally they don't. Now that doesn't mean there might be a situation where it's a good idea to get out of there, go get a bunch of people dressed like you and go back and take care of business. But um, those are a tactical um, consideration based on the facts and circumstances. You just can't say, well, you need to retreat in every case. Well, no, sometimes we need to be there. Uh, Look at just look at the flack that's happened, you know, um, over the, the situation with that active shooter event down in um, Florida um, and what happened there. Um, 
versus some other situations where officers went charging in and dealt with the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that those are a lot of it. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about uh, human performance issues, uh, action versus reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, you get into talking about, uh, especially when you start talking about attention, uh, which a lot of people understand that is tunnel vision uh, mm-hmm. and how focusing in on something and how can, you know, sometimes you'll hear things, well, how, how can that officer have been so focused on this that he saw this over here? Well, it's the way our, our eyes and our, and our brain work um, that you focus in on a particular aspect of your environment. You, you know, it's called selective attention. Mm-hmm. And I talk about in a training environment, the selective attention has two evil cousins, um, inattention blindness and change blindness. And, you know, and these things happen to us in our workaday, everyday lives. Yeah. Um, if you're sitting there watching a football game or you're watching a movie, especially like a scary movie, and you're really focused in on it, and then somebody walks in or your cat jumps on you, and what do you do? You freak out. Well, uh, you know, should you have seen the cat? Well, no, because you're focused in on the, the mad slasher that's about to butcher a bunch of teenagers, right? And so, um, these, like I said, these things happen to us in our, in our everyday life. Um, and, and it's just a matter of a lot of times when you're able to sit down with folks in a rational in a rational setting and talk about these things, um, generally they can come to an understanding of it, which, which goes back to why education uh, for law enforcement is such a critical thing. Right. So, yeah, you, you spoke of education. Uh, um um, backstage when we were talking as well, uh, the importance of education and how, um, you know, th- there's not a, enough uh, funding uh, for any department to actually train anyone throughout the nation to the level of education that is necessary, more likely for any occupation, because y- y- you want to learn to uh, for a certain level of understanding for especially law enforcement, then you want to constantly keep updating yourself with current information as well. Uh, can you explain a little more on the importance of what you've seen on the importance of education in law enforcement? Yeah, so education, both within the law enforcement community and without. Mm-hmm. If you're fortunate enough um, to work at an agency that has uh, tuition assistance, take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I joke about this. Um, it took me 20 years to get a six-year degree. And uh, because life happens, work happens, you know, and it's just pecking away at it one class at a time. Um, and so it's that constant growth and development. And ultimately ended up with a master in science degree in human resource development, which is really um, uh, organizational learning and, and development in, in, uh, in kind of the, in, the, in the work environment. Mm-hmm. And, but also it's getting the education within your within your career field too uh-huh. and oftentimes in in law enforcement we, we have this tendency to call everything training and so i want to kind of break it out so people understand what i'm talking about education uh-huh. is kind of the knowledge base development if you will mm-hmm. um, so when you go and you sit in a classroom for eight hours say for example that's more of an education mm-hmm. For it, the training is taking that education and applying it in, through skill set. Right. And so you sit in the classroom and you get a lecture on, you know, how to draw your handgun by way of example. And then you go to the range and actually work through it with you. You get the, the knowledge that you need to do it and then the application in the training. And so 
uh, when you look at what we do in law enforcement, um, how many different branches of skill sets there are out there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have your patrol officer. Well, within patrol, you've got canine. You might have bike patrol. You might have, like where I came from, crime scene processing. You have accident investigation or crash investigation, depending on how it's called in your area. Um, and so you've got all these different disciplines. Um, then you've got SWAT. Within SWAT, there's all these you know, sub-disciplines between sniper and you know, your less lethal weapons and, and dealing with other types of weapons that are not typically available to a patrol officer. You go to investigations. Good grief. I mean, you want to talk about some complexities there. Um Computer crimes, you know, um, child sex abuse and, and crimes, uh, those two usually go hand in hand with one another. And then you got sexual assault, you got all your your uh, theft, fraud, forgery, and then you get into robbery, homicides, and assault units. And each one of those brings their own specializations with them. And so no agency really can afford to send people to training. And so it's really um on us to develop a growth mindset mm. and understand that one your department can't pay for everything and so maybe you got to dip into your own pocket and pay for some training right um you know i paid for a couple of trips out of alaska to go to training that i felt was important for my development mm -hmm. uh, doing things like um you know uh, just constantly learning you don't always have to step into a classroom you can pick up books uh, yeah here is um, doing safety differently. It's part of a class that I'm in right now through the Association of Force Investigators on uh, force analysis units. Uh, and so there's a lot of ways to, to grow and develop that don't require you sitting in a classroom hoping that the department's going to pay for it. Um, but that's on you. Yeah. And here on Black and Blue, we, we, we do training experiences and publications uh, at least once a month. And we got somebody coming in uh, later this month, uh, another uh, instructional book. We had uh, a fictional book last week. I'm sorry, last month. Uh, and we have instructional books for law enforcement throughout. So therefore, all the trainings and experiences uh, that uh, were invested into that individual author slash law enforcement officer are invested in that book. And you can take and pick get to uh what is chew up the meat and spit out the bones of each of those books and that's training lessons education right there like you just said right yeah so you're also a, a firearms instructor as well um how important is the use of firearms well we uh, of course we all know the use of firearms for law enforcement is is high up there it's very important we need it um to, to protect ourselves to protect uh, uh the, the public as well um right. and there's many misconceptions uh uh for uh firearms and law enforcement as well can you clear some of those misconceptions up that you may ha know about or have experienced yourself you got about five or six hours for this conversation <laughs> I know it could go on and on and on. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the, and the thing about it is, you know, it's really funny. You can talk to instructors in all sorts of disciplines. Uh, you know, uh, let's say, for example, defensive tactics instructors, and you can talk to them and say, hey, you know, have you considered this, this, and this over here? And they're all over it. You want to have that same kind of conversation with a firearms instructor, watch out. You're about to have a bunch of fireworks. Um, I don't know what it is, and you know, and I want to be careful. I don't want to generalize all firearms instructors because I know there are phenomenal firearms instructors out there. Mm -hmm. 
But firearms is one of those areas, and I know I'm going to step on some toes, and I know I'm probably going to get some hate mail about this. But um, when it comes to firearms instruction, a lot of what we have done over the last 20, 30 years in firearms really has been this, um, I hate to use the word, but it's just this, I'll use a better one, legacy training. Let's put it that way. Okay. And so... um, you ask an instructor today, well, why are you doing that? Well, especially if they're a newer instructor. Well, that's what I was told to do. And then you go to that instructor, and then they're going to they're gonna go all the way back into, you know, training that might have been developed back in the 70s or the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And without really taking serious look at um, what happens on the range versus what happens in, in reality. Yeah. And... And so when I work with new firearms instructors, there's a couple of questions I ask them. And the first question that I'll ask them, and, you know, if any of the guys from Idaho that have heard me ask them this, they're probably sick and tired of hearing it. But the first question I ask them is, is are you training to reality within the confines of safety? Mm. If you're not, then why are you doing it? Then the second, the next series of questions is, if you know with 100% certainty that your student is going to be in a shooting tonight, hmm. would you train them different? Wow. And if the answer is yes, then how are you going to do that? And, and so those are really conceptually for us to understand that the vast majority of firearms training in law enforcement, and I know that, in, again, there are exceptions to this. There are agencies that are doing really good jobs with firearms, and so um, and so, I don't send me hate mail, okay? Um, I've talked to cops from across the United States, and I hear a lot of the same thing. In fact, I just had a conversation uh, with an officer the other day from an agency, and um, it's a, lar- you know, a larger agency. Uh, and really their firearms instruction is get to the range, get your call done, get back on the street. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if, if qualifications are your driving, um, driving factor for your firearms training, you're really setting the officer up for failure. Because, you know, if we honestly look at what happens in a typical firearms qualification, you're on a square range, your target is at a set distance, it is non-threatening, it is non-moving, you're told how many shots to fire and in what time to fire it. How much thought process is involved in that? Listen for the beep, draw, shoot your prescribed number of shots, go back to your holster, listen for the beep, or something to that effect, right? Mm-hmm. So what really happens out in a deadly force confrontation? The target is threatening, the target is moving, probably advancing on you, uh, maybe running, maybe doing all sorts of stuff. Um, you're moving. And oftentimes, officers aren't accounting for their own movement. Um, you're trying to engage, and all of these different things are playing that are coming into uh, this um, perceptual distortions, cognitive um, problems. I mean, it just the list goes on and on and on. Uh-huh. And so, how are we reconciling those two issues? Well, the way that you do it in a training environment is is you've got to try to duplicate those conditions where and when you can. Right. Um, with the full knowledge that um, you cannot completely set up the same type of conditions um, that an officer is going to experience in the real world. Right. Um, 
we let's say for example scenario training so we put them through some realistic force on force training um where the the subject involved is moving is is probably shooting back with you know non-lethal training ammunition and those kinds of things or you know other types of props um there's a fear of failing in front of your peers there's a fear that you're going to get you know shot by one of these uh, non-lethal training rounds um you know it's going to hit you someplace soft and, and, you know, anybody's been in that training, we all know, right? Um, and, but does it really duplicate the stress level and the anxiety and the fear and some of the other perceptual distortion problems that come with being in a real gunfight? No. But it, you know, it's a little bit illegal and slightly unethical for me to actually shoot at you with real bullets, you know, to give you that effect. And so... <laughs> Um, so how do we how do we reconcile those two things and and that's when you run smack dab into reality. Um, what is the knowledge, skills, and abilities of the instructor? What is um, how much is it going to cost to put on that level of training? What does your administration understand about that level of training? Um, size of the agency can make a huge difference. Um, you know, if you're a really small agency, you might not have the resources. I had one agency up until a couple of years ago, their annual training budget for eight deputies was $1,500 a year. Wow. Yeah. And that included ammo. So how much training is really being done? Yeah. Versus you, you take like the New York PDs where, you know, 35, 40,000 cops, how are you going to run through, through all of this level of training? And, and so you've got that, that, that in between, where's, where do you make that work? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's where you know, we as a profession really have to sit down and take a hard look at how training, especially like firearms training, is, is done. Take data, take information, and use that. And so you know, one data point by way of example, law enforcement officer killed summaries. The, the last year that those were published was in 2019. Mm-hmm. Look at the data that comes from that. And um, 89% or round up to 90% if you want to, 90% of the officers that were feloniously killed on the job were done so at 20 feet or less. Mm. Then you take a look at those numbers and you drill down a little further and you get to 57% of the officers that were killed feloniously are done so at five feet or less. Wow. So if we know that almost two thirds of the officers are killed at five feet or less, what should our training look like? Yeah. You know, if we know that 90% of officers are killed at 20 feet or less, what should our training look like? Mm-hmm. Now, some people might misunderstand because this has happened. Does that mean we don't train at 25 yards? That's not what I'm saying. We need to train at those further distances, but that's not, <clears throat> excuse me, that's not where I put the emphasis on my training. Mm-hmm. The emphasis of that training needs to be up close. Now, if I'm, let's say I'm within five feet, <clears throat> And I go back to my old, uh, you know, field interview training days where they would say, you got to stay at least six feet away from somebody. Well, how realistic is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clearly, yeah. you got to close the distance and go hands on to put cuffs on. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> or I got to get documents. If I'm doing an FI on you and I want your ID and you got it and you're handing it over, I got to be within arm's reach of you. So if, so let's take a look at and have a real conversation. So if I know that these things are happening within arm's reach, and I also take a look at um, 
the the data that's out there, the science that's been done on action versus reaction, and, and I know how fast your average officer is in getting their gun out of their holster, and I know how fast a subject who has made a decision to attack that officer is. The reality is, if I'm dealing with a suspect and I'm within arm's reach and he pulls a gun, I'm not beating that draw. Mm. Not with my gun, I'm not. So mm-hmm. now we have to take a serious look at well, what else can we do? Well, can we get into incorporating defensive tactics now into our firearms training? Mm. And now you want to have some firearms instructors, and I've, and I've talked to them, you want to watch their heads explode and start having that conversation. Yeah, um, yeah. What that's going to look like. And and I think that's, you know, and that's, that's a fight that needs to be done. Uh, because there's a lot of um, stuff that's out there. In fact, I sent out a video to um, some of our um, firearms instructors um, last week uh, of an officer escorting a guy, and the guy's got his right hand inside of his jacket, and the officer's telling him to take his hand out. And as the guy brings his hand out, he has a gun. He turns to his left towards the officer. The officer smacks the gun out of of the way, um, basically deflects um, what the suspect is doing. And that provided that officer with enough time to draw his own weapon and and, and protect himself. Mm -hmm. And so these are the kinds of things that we really look at. Where is any of that if you just go to the range and shoot pulse? Yeah. It doesn't exist. So that's why we, you know, that's where you know a lot of folks that are that are coming along line or in pushing some of this more advanced um, training to look at um, basically using you know scientific information and data to back up what it is that you're doing with your training because you can hear different terms thrown around you're going to hear science based or evidence based <clears throat> excuse me or evidence informed. Mm-hmm. And that's really what you want to build your training programs on. It's what are what are the best practices today, right? Um, and so that's the the real trick is how do we get there? Good question. Good topic. Good good points. Absolutely. Uh, and I know uh, hopefully it doesn't ruffle too many feathers too bad. Uh, but it's information that needs to be uh, shared and put out there as well. Uh, yeah. it, enlightening information because I, do, I know we do train um, from some uh, some further distances um, but when a lot of things you know I mean realistically speaking we, we are normally face to face with the individuals that we're dealing with um, through from traffic stops <laughs> domestics uh, individuals suspicious people whatever it may be and like you said when you they, you got to identify yourself you're basically going hand to hand with just um, um identification and documents right you know the fun and the thing is it's not new mm-hmm. i mean there's a book back here on the shelf uh written by uh two british captains from the 1930s and published that book in 1942 and they were taking a look at um officer involved shootings for the british uh, military police in shanghai china back in the 30s when uh, shanghai was a british mandate and they looked at 666 shootings. Now, unfortunately, they don't put the number in the um, in the book, unfortunately, but they said the majority of their shootings were at four yards or less. So we're talking wow. 12 yards. We're, we're talking 12 feet. Yeah. Um, and so their solution to that problem was since the vast majority of their shootings were up close and personal, 
was what they called instinctive shooting. Today, you're, you might hear it differently. You might hear things along the lines of point shooting or uh, gaze coupled shooting or gaze action coupled. Um, you'll hear different terms uh, thrown about. Um, and some people get really concerned about it because um, up close and personal, you know, the training is, is you're not, you're not focusing on the front sight. What you're doing is you're using your body position and the, and the weapon itself as the sight and, you know, sending rounds um, because you don't have, you don't have time. Uh, and when you start looking at wound ballistics and how people respond to when they're being shot, if you don't have that central nervous system hit or you don't have a psychological collapse on the part of the individual, then the only way that they're going to stop is blood loss followed by unconsciousness and you know and so that gets into some you know don't know your audience so i don't want to get too graphic kinds of issues but you know that's these are all things that we've got to take a look at and how does it impact you know an officer's response and and we haven't even started talking about you know decision making and and situational awareness and sense making that goes on um prior to and um and then how does all of that trickle down to over eighteen thousand law enforcement agencies here in the country so good point good topic yeah yeah absolutely ladies and gentlemen boys and girls we're going to jump to another sergeant be safe uh, cartoon, and we're going to jump right back in this interview. Stand by. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. Hello, Sergeant B. Safe, Captain Chaos. I'm your new district attorney, Justin Case. Hello, Justin Case. Nice to meet you. Yes, it's a pleasure. I'm glad we're all on the same team. Yes, locking up bad guys. Let's go inside the courthouse and see the judge. We have bad guys to put away. You are absolutely right. Let's go inside and get to work. All rise. I am the Honorable Judge Mint. Good morning, Your Honor. Attorneys, present your closing arguments. I'm a defense attorney, Scott Free, and my guys didn't do it. The proof has been laid out, Judge. Sergeant B. Safe and Captain Chaos caught these guys red-handed. What you mean, red-handed? Order in the court. I find these three guilty on all counts. Ooh. Well, I'm out of here. I'm innocent. I didn't what do sell you mean crap. Guilty? I don't hack. Urgh. Good work. Yes, job well done, team. I just want to say good job to our brand new district attorney, just in case. And from me and Captain Chaos, that's your tip of the day to get you on your way.
Welcome back. We're jumping back in this interview. We got Matt Bloodfield. I hope you guys enjoyed that cartoon commercial. Uh, we have a wonderful conversation. And I, I got a few more questions before we wrap up. Matt, I want to know what what exactly what is your in-game goal as far as any of your being an expert, being um a use of force, uh, work, working with posts, anything in law enforcement. I mean, you've had a long and tremendous career, but let's just say in about 35 years, what would you say your in-game goal would be? Uh, you were kind of breaking up a little bit. Uh, is my in-game and what I'm going to do in the next three to five years? Yes, yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Uh, There's kind of a delay on the, on the computer link. Um, well, right now I'm looking at... Uh, I started a countdown clock, um, 51 weeks, and uh, looking at uh, retiring from post. Okay. Um, I want to stay active um, as far as um, getting more into the teaching side of things. Um, and the expert work as far as working on cases is important, but it's not my, uh, it's not my, my calling, if you will. I, you know, I do it uh, because I'm trying to be trying to help out as best as I can, but I would much rather um, teach um, and work with other instructors and really kind of helping them along. Um, right now, I'm really trying to, to learn <laughs> to bridge between the science side of things and, uh, and, and being able to talk to officers. <clears throat> um, in fact, uh, one of my friends, one of my friends, constantly tells me, "He goes, Matt, you got to quit being a propeller head." You know, um, and so it's, you know, how do I take a complex issue like, uh, you know, selective attention, just by way of example? How do you take a complex issue like that, with everything that surrounds that, and how do you break that down into something that, you know, somebody who does not have, a, you know, an understanding of what that is? How do how do you make sense of that to them? Um, and how do you convey that? Um, one of the guys that um, has been mentoring me, he says, you know, take those, learn how to take those complex issues and break them down into sixty into a sixty second bite, if you will, and being able to convey that to a jury or convey that to members of the public, um, so they can kind of get a basic understanding of a complex issue very quickly. Um, and so it's really kind of learning how to do that, not just from you know the expert side of things, but how do I talk to other instructors that that may not have that, um, yeah. and how do I how do I learn to encourage them, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to step into reading that stuff because there's so much information available out on the out there in the world that that we in law enforcement just don't know about mm -hmm. um you know coming up through um early on in my career uh you know if the department didn't provide it you know i'm not going to go out and pull up you know scientific journals and you know peer-reviewed articles and you know yeah. empirical studies and read them i just wasn't going to do that yeah and then I, I get into school and I'm going through and I'm having to read those things uh, as far as being able to do my, my papers uh, for class. Um, I had to do that a whole bunch of research work for my master's thesis and, and my defense on that. And, and then you go into, um, say, some of the, the higher level order of training, if you will, or higher order of education at the police level organizations such as for science and uh, association of force investigators or Dega law group and some of those folks um you know you're really getting into the you know the deeper science if you will 
and you're having to understand that and it becomes very apparent very quickly um how how much information is out there yeah um for example when you talk about uh, peer-reviewed studies you know empirical data um since i just was looking at this earlier today since 1996 something like 65 million journal articles and whatnot have been published and it's an average wow. of five and a half million per year wow and obviously, obviously that stuff runs the gamut but um i was helping out uh, doing some research work a couple uh, about a month or so ago and we were looking on issues related to action versus reaction mm-hmm. and i was looking at olympic level shooters and what really kind of surprised me i mean it makes sense that this would happen but it was really surprising to me how many empirical studies there were on sway we're literally talking about how much body movement an olympic shooter has you know it could be due to wind it could just be their own you know no matter how hard you try to hold yourself still there's still movement and there's study after study on on sway and you know and so it's a thing of with us in law enforcement of learning to look outside of law enforcement for information um you know, I'll pick on another really hot button topic, uh, vascular restraints. Hmm. So in the law enforcement world, we, we know it as vascular neck restraint. Um, there's um, an organization, um, can't remember their name off the top of my head, actually has the kind of copyright to lateral vascular neck restraint by way of the name. And so we hear about, you know, vascular neck restraint, vascular neck restraint, okay? And then people will throw out, well, rear naked choke. Well, if you look at, you go into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and I'm not an expert in this by any stretch of the imagination, which is some research work I've done. Um, Rear naked choke, if you look at the technique, is essentially vascular neck restraint. Pretty much all along the same lines. And here in Pocatello, Idaho, there is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym that will t- teach rear naked choke to eight-year-olds. Yeah. It's safe enough for us to teach eight-year-olds. Mm-hmm. It's safe enough for teenagers to use in competitions. It's safe enough for a multi-billion dollar industry in, in the UFC and MMA. Mm-hmm. But... It's so dangerous that you and I can't use that technique out on the street. Yeah. Stop um, a fight. And you've got studies that are out there um, that were published a couple of years ago. Um, we're over 85, I think it was 85,000 applications in a training environment and over 700 applications on the street across these three agencies in the United States and Canada. No fatalities, no hospitalizations. Okay. Yeah. Those are okay, good so numbers. Yeah. So, What's the reason we can't use it? Politics. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is why we really have to look at um, data evidence, you know, scientific research that's done, and we need to look outside of law enforcement for some of this stuff. Um, I mean, what is defensive tactics? You know, depending on what agency you work at, like, for example, um, Los Angeles Police Department has their arrest and control tactics program. They call it ARCON. Well, we adopted that here in Idaho. It's used across the entire state of Idaho. Well, fundamentally, what is a lot of that baseline? Brazilian jiu-jitsu. A lot of ground fighting stuff. Well, why is there a lot of ground fighting stuff? Well, research shows a lot of fights end up on the ground. And so you need to learn how to operate and defend yourself and, and gain control of a subject from the ground 
Yeah. And so how much of that training is being done? Yeah. And so that's why this, uh, we've got to really spend time on research and uh, looking at information, uh, taking stuff um, from other sources and, and bringing it in. Um, and you know, I don't want to necessarily shoehorn it in to, to try and make something work that probably isn't going to work, but, you know, let's take advantage of that. The sports side of the world, what happens, you know, what are the two major things that happen in use of force events? It's either firearms or some form of defensive tactics. Uh-huh. There are billions of dollars that are spent, you know, on the sports side, you know, competition shooting. Yeah. Grief. There's untold who knows how much money the military spends on that kind of stuff. Why not take advantage of some of that research? Um, you've got all these different competitions out there. I mean, good grief. I've, I've run across studies on, you know, for um, Muay Thai fighters on what is the most effective and fastest kick. Hmm. Do we have to kick subjects in law enforcement? Yes, we do. Can we look at the research on how to be more effective at that because if i'm more effective with my kick then i'm less likely to have to kick again uh-huh. and maybe that one good solid kick in the right place you know in the in the uh, in the leg um is going to stop the fight uh-huh. now on the body cam is kicking somebody to look really ugly yeah but you know if I can stop the fight quickly and definitively, I'm less yeah. likely to injure the subject. I'm less likely to be hurt, and we bring this thing to a faster conclusion. Yeah, sounds like the lesser of two evils. Yeah, well, absolutely. Thank you for sharing again. I appreciate it, uh, Matt. We we talked about a, a lot of. Uh, Am I coming through? Again? There's a little bit of a delay. Okay. All right, yeah, I, I hear myself. I'm sure I got everything turned out. But through the course of conversation, I may have forgot something, or I may, you may have jogged your memory. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us right now? The floor is yours. Um, no, I think we covered pretty much what you and I had discussed uh, prior to. Um, you know, it just, um, I would just leave everybody with just the thought that. Uh, no matter where you are, what job you have in law enforcement, um, develop and maintain a growth mindset. That just this continual um, desire to learn, have this continual curiosity, um, and remember at the end of the day, like you and I talked about, it's not about you or me. It's about these folks out here uh, just trying to live their lives and how we can go about best doing our job to protect those those folks and protect ourselves in the process. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you got all good points, all good topics, man. I had a great time uh, uh, having a conversation with you tonight. Um, I hope this isn't the last time that we talk. I'm looking forward to watching. I know you say you got the countdowns on, but looking forward to watch you teach and instruct. Uh, I'm still providing growth. Um, you're in the growth mindset and providing growth to uh, future up and comers, law, law enforcement guys that guys and gals that are getting into the business that are already in the business and looking to grow. Uh, and, and we're all learning from you. We appreciate you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate your time and, and for inviting me on the program and happy to come back if you if you need me and and we'll talk some more. Absolutely. Definitely will. Definitely will. Mm-hmm. 2024 
is going to be an amazing year. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Black and Blue. Make sure you keep your questions coming. Make sure you tag, like, share. Hit that like button because that like button's free, and we're trying to get this information out there. I'm your host, your motivational speaker. This is Black and Blue, where we air weekly at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we go live, we go live with law enforcement or a first responder who is rookie season or retiree. And we talk about their training experiences or publications. And we did not fall short today. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed yourself. I hope you guys are continuing to be safe and ha have a wonderful new year. Again, take care of each other. We're going to be going live next week. I got a special guest coming in next week. I would like love to tell you who they are, but I'm not going to right now because I got to keep you on the edge of your seat. So we'll see you guys next week. You guys be safe. 10-4 over and out. Dispatch, put me out at 59. There's a car block on the roadway. They may be broke down. I'm going to go check on them. Oh, now that I have a closer look, I don't think they're broke down. Excuse me, sir. Is everything okay? Yeah, I was just put over answering a text and looking something up on my maps. Okay, but you're blocking the road, and we can't have that. It's only for a second. Besides, cars can go around me. It doesn't matter if it's for a second or for a lifetime. You can't block the roadway. That's not fair to other cars that have to go around you. Oh, I didn't think it mattered. I guess you're right. If you have to check your text messages or enter something into your maps while you're driving, pull all the way over to the side of the road, or better yet, find a parking lot and pull in there. There's a parking lot right up there. I'll go up there to plug in the address. Thank you, sir. I truly appreciate it. Sorry about that. Thank you, Sergeant. Be safe. You're welcome. And that way, we can keep the roadway clear to avoid potential accidents. And that's your tip of the day to get you on your way. <laughs>